A reading from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. You've heard the commandment, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, offer no resistance whatsoever when you're confronted with violence. When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and offer the other. If anyone wants to sue you for your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go two miles. Give to those who beg from you and don't turn your back on those who want to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. This will prove that you are children of God, for God makes the sun rise on bad and good alike. God's rain falls on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what merit is there in that? Don't tax collectors do as much? And if you greet only your sisters and brothers, what is so praiseworthy about that? Don't Gentiles do as much? Therefore, be perfect as Abba God in heaven is perfect. This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God. So this is children's time, but it's, it's not actually children's time. This is for the grown-ups. The book we want to read today is an excellent book, and it is a children's book, and it goes perfectly with the service, but for reasons I think you'll see as we read it, there are some words and some rhetoric that we're not quite sure a lot of our kids are ready to hear yet. So if you're a parent uh, and you do like this book and you do want your kids to hear it, then just that's great. Go back and rewind it later, but this first time it's mainly just for you. So, this book is called White Flower by David Lamont. It was bright and sunny, as most May days tend to be, in the hills of Appalachia, down in Knoxville, Tennessee. A dozen men put on their suits and quickly took their places in white robes and those tall and pointed hoods that hid their faces. Their feet fell down in rhythm as they started their parade. They raised their fists into the air. They bellowed and they brayed. They loved to stir the people up. They loved when they were taunted. They didn't mind the anger. It's exactly what they wanted. As they came around the corner, sure enough, the people roared, but they couldn't quite believe their ears. It seemed to be support. Had Knoxville finally seen the light? Were people coming round? The men thought for a moment that they'd found their kind of town. But then they turned their eyes to where the cheering had its source, as one their shoulders crumpled when they saw its mighty force. The crowd had painted faces, and some had tacky clothes, their hair and hats outrageous. Each one had a bright red nose. 
The clowns had come in numbers to enjoy the grand parade. They laughed and danced. The other clowns had come to town that day. And then the marchers shouted, and the clowns all strange to hear. Each one tuned in intently with a hand cupped to an ear. White power, screamed the marchers, and they raised their fisted hands. The clowns leaned in and listened like they couldn't understand. Then one held up his finger and helped all the others see the point of all this yelling, and they joined right in with glee. White flower, the clowns shouted, and they reached inside their clothes. They pulled out bags and tore them, and huge clouds of powder rose. They poured it on each other, and they threw it in the air. It got all over baggy clothes and multicolored hair. Now all but just a few of them were joining in the jokes. You could almost see the marchers turning red beneath their cloaks. They wanted to look scary. They wanted to look tough. One rushed right at the clowns in rage and was hauled away in cuffs. But the others chanted louder, marching on around the bend. The clowns all marched on too, of course, supporting their new friends. White power, came the marchers' cry. They were not amused. The clowns grew still and thoughtful. Well, perhaps they'd been confused. They huddled and consulted this bright and silly crowd. They listened quite intently. Then one said, I've got it now. White flowers, screamed the happy clown, and all the rest joined in. The air was filled with flowers, and they laughed and danced again. Everyone loves flowers, and white's a pretty sort. I can't think of a better cause for people to support. Green flower stems went flying like small arrows from bad archers. White petals covered everything, including the mad marchers. And then a very tall clown called the others to attention. He choked down all his chuckles and said, Friends, I have to mention that what with all this mirth and fun, it's sort of hard to hear. But now I know the cause that these paraders hold so dear. Tight showers, the clown blurted as he hid his head in wonder. He held up a camp shower and all the others got under. Or at least they tried to get beneath. They trained, but strained, but couldn't quite. There wasn't room for all of them. They pushed, but it was tight. White power, came the mad refrain, quite carefully pronounced. The clowns consulted once again. Then a woman clown announced, I've got it. I'm embarrassed that it took so long to see. But what these marchers march for is a cause quite dear to me. Wife power, she exclaimed, and all the other clowns joined in. They shook their heads and laughed at how erroneous they'd been. The women clowns were hoisted up on shoulders of the others. Some pulled on wedding dresses, chanting, here's to wives and mothers. The men in robes were sullen. They knew they'd been defeated. They yelled a few more times, and then they finally retreated. And when they'd gone, a kind policeman turned to all the clowns and offered them an escort through the center of the town. The day was bright and sunny, as most May days tend to be, in the hills of Appalachia, down in Knoxville, Tennessee. People joined the new parade. The crowd stretched out for miles. 
The clowns passed out more flowers and made everybody smile. And what would be the lesson of that shiny southern day? Can we understand the message that the clowns sought to convey? Seems that when you're fighting hatred, hatred's not the thing to use. So here's to those who march on in their big red floppy shoes. The End. This is White Flower, a true story by David Lamont. This morning, I lend my voice to share with you the wisdom of biblical scholar and theologian Walter Wink, who spent much of his career teaching at Auburn Theological Seminary in New York, and whose groundbreaking treatment of the gospel passage for today is nothing short of revolutionary. This sermon today is, in fact, an abridged adaptation of a chapter from his 1998 book, The Powers That Be, Theology for a New Millennium. In that chapter, which is called Jesus' Third Way, he writes from a place of acknowledging that while there are many of Jesus' teachings that we take quite literally, things like, say, feeding the hungry, there are other sayings of Jesus that many otherwise devout Christians simply dismiss out of hand as impractical idealism. And Jesus' teachings on nonviolence are a prime example. And of course, it's often done with good reason. Turn the other cheek has come to imply a, a passive doormat-like quality that has made the Christian way seem cowardly and complicit in the face of injustice. Do not resist an evildoer seems to counsel submission. Going the second mile has become a platitude, meaning nothing more than to stretch yourself. Jesus' teaching, viewed this way, is impractical, masochistic, even suicidal an invitation to bullies and spouse batterers to walk all over the meek Christians in their path. But Jesus never displayed that kind of passivity. Whatever the source of the misunderstanding, these distortions are clearly neither in Jesus nor in his teaching, which in context is one of the most revolutionary political statements ever uttered. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. The traditional interpretation of do not resist an evildoer has been non-resistance to evil, which makes sense looking at the words on the page. But 
given the fact that on every occasion, Jesus himself did resist evil with every fiber of his being, it seems an odd conclusion to draw. The gospel does not teach non-resistance to evil. Jesus counsels and embodies resistance, but without violence. The Greek word translated resist here is a word that literally means to stand against. And in Jesus' time, that word to stand against was most often used as a technical term for warfare. It describes the way opposing armies would march toward each other until their ranks met, and then they would take a stand or fight. In the New Testament, we see it again in Ephesians when we're instructed to take up the whole armor of God so that we'll be able to withstand or stand against evil. So the word means more than to resist evil. It means to resist violently, to revolt or rebel, to engage in an armed insurrection. Now, the Bible translators working under the eye of King James on what came to be known as the King James Version knew that the king did not want people to conclude that they had any recourse against his or any other sovereign's tyranny. In fact, James had explicitly commissioned a new translation of the Bible because of what he regarded as seditious, dangerous, and traitorous tendencies in the notes printed in the margins of the Geneva Bible, notes which included endorsement of the right to disobey a tyrant. And so, in King James's version, Jesus is made to command us to resist not. Jesus appears to authorize tyranny and to tout submission as the will of God. And most modern translators have meekly followed in that path. But here's the rub. Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but rather to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. He's urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by finding a third way, one that is at once assertive and yet nonviolent. The most helpful translation would be one in harmony with what we find in Romans, in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Peter. Do not repay evil for evil. Another version of this verse reads, don't react violently against the one who is evil. In case you're growing tired of the linguistic argument, let's keep reading and look at the examples Jesus gives of how this plays out. Verse 39, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Pause for a second, close your eyes, and imagine the scene Jesus describes. 
Are you imagining a blow struck by a right-handed fist? Probably. But a right-handed fist only naturally strikes a left cheek. To hit the right cheek with a fist would require a left hand. But in Jesus' time, the left hand could only be used for unclean tasks. We have documentation from Qumran, a Jewish religious community of Jesus' day, that even to gesture with the left hand meant exclusion from the meeting and penance for 10 days. But to grasp this, you really have to try it yourself. And since we're all in the privacy of our own homes, feel free, give it a try. How would you hit the other's right cheek with your right hand? If you've tried it, you'll know the only feasible blow is a backhand. The backhand was not a blow to injure, but to insult, to humiliate, to degrade. It was not administered to an equal, but to an inferior. In the ancient world, the backhand is the strike of a master to a slave, of a husband to a wife, of a parent to a child, of a Roman to a Jew. The whole point of the blow was to force someone who was out of line back into place. Consider for a moment that Jesus is not speaking here metaphorically. He says to his audience, if anyone strikes you, the implication is that this is within the realm of their actual experience. These are people used to being degraded in this way. And so Jesus is saying to them, refuse to accept this kind of treatment anymore. If they backhand you, turn the other cheek. And now you really have to physically enact this to see the problem. By turning the cheek, the servant makes it impossible for the master to use the backhand again. His nose is in the way. And anyway, it's like telling a joke twice. If it didn't work the first time, it simply won't work. The left cheek now offers a perfect target for a blow with the right fist, but only equals fought with fists, as we know from Jewish sources. And the last thing the master wants to do is to establish equality with the servant. So by turning the cheek, then, the inferior is saying, I am a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am an equal. I am a child of God, and I won't take it anymore. Now, don't misunderstand. Defiance, even subversive defiance, is no way to avoid trouble. Meek acquiescence is what the master wants. This kind of cheeky behavior may call down a flogging or worse, but the point has been made. The powers that be 
have lost their power to make people submit. And when large numbers begin behaving thus, and Jesus was addressing a crowd, you have a social revolution on your hands. In that world of honor and shaming, the superior has been rendered impotent to instill shame in a subordinate. He's been stripped of his power to dehumanize the other. As Gandhi taught, the first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. How different this is from the usual view of this passage as one that teaches us to turn the other cheek so our batterer can simply clobber us again. How often that interpretation has been fed to battered wives and children. And it was never what Jesus intended. To those victims, he advises Stand up for yourselves, defy your masters, assert your humanity, but don't answer the oppressor in kind. There is a third way beyond cowardly submission or violent retaliation. Jesus' second example of assertive nonviolence is set in a court of law. A creditor has taken a poor man to court over an unpaid loan. Only the poorest of the poor were subjected to that kind of treatment. Deuteronomy 24 provided that a creditor could take as collateral for a loan a poor person's outer robe, but it had to be returned each evening, so the poor man would have something to sleep in. When Jesus says to give them your cloak as well, he's not advising people to add to their own disadvantage by renouncing justice altogether, as so many commentators have suggested. He is telling impoverished debtors who have nothing left but the clothes on their backs to use the system against itself. Indebtedness was a plague in first century Palestine. Jesus' parables are full of debtors struggling to salvage their lives. But heavy debt was not a natural consequence of a financially incompetent generation. It was the direct result of Roman imperial policy. The taxes imposed by emperors on the wealthy were passed on through back channels and disguised investments to peasant landowners who paid exorbitant interest to the wealthy until they were regularly driven deep enough into debt that they would relinquish their land, land that had often been in the family for generations. By the time of Jesus, we see this process already far advanced. Large estates owned by absentee landlords managed by stewards, and worked by tenant farmers, day laborers, and slaves, all of whom show up frequently in the stories Jesus tells. It is no accident that the first act of the Jewish revolutionaries in the year 66 CE 
was to burn the temple treasury where the record of debts was kept. It is to this situation that Jesus speaks when he says, again, not metaphorically, if anyone would sue you. His audience shares a rankling hatred for a system that subjects them to humiliation by stripping them of their lands, their goods, and finally even their outer garments. Why then does Jesus counsel them to give over their undergarments as well? This would mean stripping off all their clothing and marching out of court stark naked. Nakedness was taboo in Judaism, but shame fell less on the naked party than on the person viewing or causing the nakedness, as we know from other stories in the Hebrew Bible. By stripping down, the debtor has brought shame on the creditor. Imagine the laughter this must have evoked. There stands the creditor covered with shame, the poor debtor's outer garment in the one hand, his undergarment in the other. The tables have suddenly been turned on the creditor. The debtor had no hopes of winning the case. The law was entirely in the creditor's favor, but the poor man has transcended this attempt to humiliate him. He has risen above shame. At the same time, he has registered a stunning protest against the system that created his debt. He said, in effect, you want my robe? Here, take everything. Now you've got all I have except my body. Is that what you'll take next? Imagine the debtor leaving the court naked. His friends and neighbors, aghast, inquire what happened, he explains, and they join in his growing procession, which now resembles a victory parade. This is guerrilla theater. The entire system by which debtors are oppressed has been publicly unmasked. The creditor is revealed not to be a legitimate moneylender, but a party to the reduction of an entire social class to landlessness and destitution. This unmasking is more than punitive since it offers the creditor a chance to see, maybe for the first time in his life, the effects of his practices on the lives of real people and to repent. The powers that be literally stand on their dignity, but by refusing to be awed by their power, the powerless are emboldened to seize the initiative, even when structural change is not immediately possible. This message, far from counseling an unattainable otherworldly perfection, is a practical strategic measure for empowering the oppressed. It provides a hint of how to take on the entire system by unmasking its essential cruelty and burlesquing its pretensions to justice. Those who have ears to hear 
will no longer be treated as sponges to be squeezed dry by the rich. They can accept the laws as they stand, push them to absurdity, and reveal them for what they have become. They can strip naked, walk out before their fellows, and leave the creditors and the whole economic edifice they represent stark naked. Going the second mile, Jesus' third example is drawn from the relatively enlightened practice of limiting to a single mile the amount of forced or impressed labor that Roman soldiers could levy on their subjects. This kind of compulsory service was a constant feature in Palestine from Persian to late Roman times. Whoever was found on the street could be coerced into service. Think of Simon of Cyrene, who's forced to carry Jesus' cross. Higher-ranking legionnaires could buy slaves or donkeys to carry their packs of 60 to 85 pounds, not including weapons. The majority of the rank and file, however, had to depend on requisitioned civilians. Whole villages sometimes fled to avoid being forced to carry the soldiers' baggage. Now, what has often been overlooked in this passage is the fact that carrying the pack a second mile is an infraction of military code. It was usually left to the commanding officer to determine disciplinary action for minor infractions. So he might fine the offending soldier or flog him or put him on a ration of barley instead of wheat, make him camp outside the fortifications, or force him to stand all day before the general's tent holding a clod of dirt in his hands. Of course, if the offender was a buddy of his, he might just issue a mild reprimand, but the point is that the soldier does not know what will happen. It is in this context of Roman military occupation that Jesus speaks. He does not counsel revolt. One does not befriend the soldier and then draw him aside and drive a knife into his ribs. No, Jesus was surely aware of the futility of armed insurrection against the might of imperial Rome. He certainly did nothing to encourage those whose hatred of Rome would soon explode into violence. But why carry the soldier's pack a second mile? Does this not go to the opposite extreme by aiding and abetting the enemy? Not at all. The question here, as in the previous two instances, is how the oppressed can recover the initiative and assert their human dignity in a situation that cannot, for the time being, be changed. The rules are Caesar's, but how one responds to the rules is God's, and Caesar has no power over that. Imagine then the soldier's surprise when at the next mile marker he reluctantly reaches to assume his pack and the civilian says, oh no, let me carry it another mile. 
Why would he want to do that? What is he up to? Normally, soldiers have to coerce people to carry their packs, but this Jew does so cheerfully and, in fact, won't stop. Is this a provocation? Is he insulting the legionnaire's strength or being kind? Is he trying to get him disciplined for seeming to violate the rules of impressment? Will this civilian file a complaint create trouble? From a situation of forced servitude, the oppressed have once more seized the initiative. They've taken back the power of choice. They've thrown the soldier off balance by depriving him of the predictability of his victim's response. He's never dealt with a problem quite like this before. Now he must make a decision for which nothing in his previous experience has prepared him. If he has enjoyed feeling superior to the vanquished, he will not enjoy it today. Imagine a Roman infantryman pleading with a Jew to give back his pack. The humor of this scene may have escaped us, but it could scarcely have been lost on Jesus' hearers, who must have been delighted at the prospect. Jesus does not encourage his hearers to walk a second mile in order to build up merit in heaven or to be pious or to kill the soldier with kindness. No, he is helping an oppressed people find a way to protest and neutralize a burdensome practice despised throughout the empire. He is not giving a non-political message of spiritual world transcendence. He is formulating a worldly spirituality in which people at the bottom of society or under the thumb of imperial power learn to recover their humanity. One could easily use Jesus' advice vindictively. This is why it's essential that we hear this teaching in tandem with the one that follows it, the command to love our enemies. But love is not averse to taking the law and using its oppressive momentum to throw a soldier into a region of uncertainty and anxiety that he's never known before. Now this kind of tactic can rarely be repeated. We can imagine that within days after the incidents that Jesus sought to provoke, the powers that be might pass new laws, penalties for nakedness in court, and flogging for carrying a pack more than a mile. This is where our God-given creativity must be invoked, improvising new tactics to keep the opponent off balance until the fundamental shift has taken place. To those whose lifelong pattern has been to cringe before their masters, Jesus offers a way to liberate themselves, not only from servile actions, but from a servile mentality. And he asserts that they can do this before there is a revolution. 
There's no need to wait until Rome is defeated, peasants have land or slaves are freed. They can begin to behave with dignity and recovered humanity now, even under the unchanged conditions of the old order. The reign of God is already breaking into the world, and it comes not as an imposition from on high, but as the leaven slowly causing the dough to rise. Jesus' teaching on nonviolence is integral to his proclamation of the dawning of the reign of God. Here in this teaching was a way to resist the powers that be without being made over into their image. The peasants and slaves that made up so much of Jesus' audience were in no position to transform the economic system through armed revolution. But they could begin to act from an already recovered dignity and freedom. They could create within the shell of the old society the foundations of God's domination-free order. They could begin living as if the reign of God were already here. And so, too, my friends, can we. May it be so. Amen.